Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 332, talking docs and jocks with Nathan Horrocks. Today we have a really nice interview at the end of this with Nathan Horrocks. Unfortunately, Sam was unable to attend the interview, so it's just Eddie and myself. But Sam, I will say, I did not let Eddie get off the hook. We now have someone to produce a video of Eddie trying to get over the Grand National fences in the in the most pristine video possible. <laughs> Oh, we've got some jockey cam for that. No, we wouldn't need jockey cam for that. I think we would need wider camera no, no. angles. The jo- you're, you're putting a jockey <laughs> the, cam helmet on. The jockey cam wouldn't. And we're getting, yeah. we're getting all the different video. The jockey cam footage would be me slowly <laughs> jogging around Aintree and then trying to climb it over fences. <laughs> it wouldn't be particularly fascinating. Be, just any video is going to be funny. But the fact that we're going to have a nice high-end production quality to it, it's going to go viral, no problem. But yeah, Sam, big weekend for you, making your return to major sporting events. Although I say that, you went to the Euros. Oh no, you went to the... This guy's been to more sporting events in the past year than I've been <laughs> yeah, I've actually, Yeah, I've actually done pretty well. It is so true, what have I actually. done? The... Carabao Cup semi-final. Uh, yeah, FA Cup. No, sorry, FA Cup semi-final, Carabao Cup final. final. He was going to um, do the yeah. King George. Yeah, he did. I was going to do the King George. Yeah, but then had, but had no I had, friends. Yeah, yeah, but I had zero friends. And now have done... <laughs> and still and don't arc. have friends. Yeah. And you did the arc. Did the arc. And, and, with with Eddie. And then uh, with Jake, uh, went to the um, friend of the podcast, went to the Dolphins Jags at Spurs Stadium, which is a really nice stadium, by the way. I really want to go see the stadium. So first, I'm always interested to know. I've been to the London games, I think, three times. Obviously, not only was this your first trip to the London games, this is your first ever NFL experience. It's a unique way to watch the games in the sense that you have this crowd coming who aren't necessarily that interested in either of the teams involved. And it's a kind of celebration of the sport more than it is actually feels like a competitive game at times. But I'd just be interested to know your quick takeaways. What was different from actually being at a live game than you thought it was going to be? What was better? What was worse? Would you really want to go back? Or do you think the the viewing experience at home beats the in-stadium experience. I think I think one thing you miss is that kind of like tactical oversight of the whole scenario. Like you can kind of see where people are moving. You can kind of see like where they are. Like the camera for a TV is just much better placed, right? But um, what I really liked about it was I, I thought we were going to be quite low and... Um, uh, the the stadium's fairly steep, so actually you, you kind of get more even though you're lower down. And it's amazing kind of how much more you see the coverage away from the main TV camera, if that makes sense. So you see what the secondary's doing, you see what the safeties are doing, you see how they're set up 
kind of away from the line of scrimmage. So it was quite interesting watching them like kind of dynamically trying to get around each other secondary, trying to make the plays and all that. So that was kind of a cool part of it. Uh, some reason I was picking up fouls better in person than I was on the t- like watching it on TV. Yeah, Penalties, I was picking up like false starts and stuff like that. So that was kind of, I don't know why. Maybe you're just so zoned into it. Whereas um, maybe with TV, you kind of like, you're distracted. You don't really care, like, because you're just going to hear the referee say it eventually or the officials. But I really enjoyed it. I didn't, I one of the things I thought I was going to be worried about was the pauses between like, the, the change it from like special teams or like the change of downs or like just they the TV timeouts. and then the new yeah and I didn't really care for them it was kind of like they just kind of distracted the crowd with you know trying to get people chanting what do you mean you didn't really care <laughs> I I thought I well no I thought I was going to be more annoyed at the delays they yeah, didn't bother exactly. you yeah it didn't bother me as much yeah. so all in all I thought it was great I I think I it helped that I got a game out of it, right? Because there was one point in this game where, like, the Dolphins were up by 10. Uh, the Jags were kind of doing nothing on offense as well. And I think the Dolphins then got the ball back, but got stopped. Um, yeah, it was good to get a game out of it. It was good to get a um, field goal. I don't know if you saw it on the um, on the TV, like, how much the ball kind of curved in for one of the Jags field goals. The the, fir- the, the game tying one to send it to overtime, yeah. that thing was four feet wide of the post and curved back in that was insane and it, it slotted like perfectly into the bottom right corner of yeah. it as well it was insane it was like a roberto carlos style free kick of the nfl world i've never seen an nfl kick do that wow. before not that much like it, that was crazy but yeah you got to see a game-winning overtime field goal right or not overtime yeah. sorry and end of regulation and- field goal yeah, end of regulation. Cool. Yeah, and also you got to see the Jags snap the second longest losing streak in yeah, NFL history. You got history. to see the Jags so. win a game. No one's done that in two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it week <laughs> exactly, one? Yeah. Week one last season, right? Was the last time they won. But yeah. it was cool watching how like emotional they got with that win. And maybe you know that's the kind of thing that the Jags will kind of feel a bit more at home with London, right? When those kind of things happen, you kind of maybe associate London with you know, good things. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Like is, there's the inevitability that they think this is the franchise coming to Europe. Right. But Well, maybe, I mean, it's not going to be green Bay, is it? But I, yeah, look, I think the only way the idea of Jacksonville moving, obviously the pandemic makes it impossible for that to even be considered, but they have to become better because you need to, get local interest into a greater degree. It's very hard to convince people, wow, this is so exciting. The worst team in the NFL is about to move to London than I do. And I, I and I think it's kind of sad to say I'm just part of that sort of red zone generation where I want all of the updates all the time and I like flicking between games and maybe having one or two games on that I'm focusing on, but everything else at the same time. It would be hard to convince me to go and watch an NFL game in stadium every week. No, for sure. I think... For viewing and watching, TV is definitely better. If you want to experience not so much the game, but the whole atmosphere, you know, like I wouldn't go to a game of, I don't know, Cincinnati versus Detroit. That would not interest me at all. 
Or say the Jags against the Dolphins. Or the, the Jags Dolphins. against the Dolphins, yes. <laughs> but if it were the Giants, you know, or a team that was good that I was rooting for, then it's fun because you get part of that experience of kind of being in the moment where your team has a big win or, you know, you see them come from behind and it's, it's memorable. But, yeah, you know, there wouldn't be much much memorable about Pittsburgh Seahawks, even though that went to overtime. That is not a game I would have enjoyed going to. <laughs> it's not even a game I enjoyed watching. No. <laughs> well, some of us head to the Steelers as a survivor pick, and we live on to fight another week. You told me not to do it, Frank. I did it. You. I got through. Maybe oh, a little lucky. You just got through. It even came to the point, so I actually explained to Carissa, my girlfriend, what a survivor pool is because she had no idea because I was trying to explain like why I'm watching this terrible game on, on Sunday night. And then when it was going to overtime, she asked a really good question, which was, what happens if it ends in a tie? And I was like, I think he loses. <laughs> which you- No, so my league... My league has specific rules if it what ends is it? in a tie. So if it ends in a tie, you have to make two selections. Oh, the that's so week stupid! And both no. have to win. Survivor is you have to pick a team to win, not to tie, not to lose, to win. I think you, I I would argue you picking a team not to lose. I think it's more the argument, but I, I yeah I probably got away with it a little bit on the Survivor. Now here's the one thing I gotta ask you, and this is a genuine question because obviously you didn't want me to pick the Steelers. You hate the Steelers. I don't what hate percentage the Steelers. I hate that people you think they're a good team because they're not a good team. Okay. Okay. All right. What percentage of you wanted the Seahawks to win just so you could tell me I told you so? Oh, a decent amount. I, I didn't want – no, it was <laughs> – this was a win-win situation for me because Steelers win – you and you and your survivor, you keep going. Steelers lose, then I get to give you the I told you so up and down this podcast. It was I had a speech written, I had like three pages typed out, like we were ready to go when that hit overtime. But unfortunately, Geno Smith is exactly what he thought he what we thought he was. And that is not a game time winner, unfortunately. And we talked about this off air, but watching him in the turf with just his hands in his on his helmet just in disbelief as to what he had done and given up that game i felt so sorry for him as a professional backup and you could just tell that was his like this is why i'm not a starting qb why can't i just not do this i felt terrible no i mean it's it's there's elements of the discussion we're going to have later on with Nathan Wright in the interview and the the sort of mental health side of the sport and that these are real people doing real things and it's their real lives with implications for their whole futures and contracts that they'll sign and opportunities that they'll get further down the line. And I agree with you. You see that scene of him just on the ground taking a solid, I don't know, 15 seconds of just staring into the grass, which is a long time with no teammate approaching him and just him lost in clearly his own not very happy thoughts. And you couldn't help but feel sorry for him. I mean, just someone processing that this is maybe the last big opportunity. I mean, he's going to get up until around Thanksgiving, right? But 
he, between now and then, he has to do something pretty special in order to change the perception surrounding his level of play. And that as the first start was not the best way to do that. And he played a decent game, not a good, great game, but you know, the first half stagnant, but that second half, he, he came to life and he had a few nice drives down the field. Looked like he finally got into a rhythm and you thought, uh Oh, you know, maybe he's going to keep it turned on here and, and pull one out. And then, yeah, unfortunate fumble and the, the Steelers survived. And so does Eddie. <laughs> so obviously it was a week of blowouts and thrilling endings. It kind of the games went one way or the other. Either the game was done and dusted with seven minutes to go, or the game was decided in the final seconds or in overtime. The only exception to that being the Vikings who managed to take a game that was done and dusted and then turn it into a thriller. Now, that was an emotional roller coaster, maybe more of an emotional roller coaster for some of us. Now looking at the standings and the records of some of these teams, and you're kind of getting towards, I mean, we're a third of the way through the season now. So you start to feel as if teams are having, showing their true selves one way or the other. Who do you believe in? Who out of the teams that have got off to a good start do you not believe in? So I'm going to leave out the teams I think we would agree now, are real quick, good. Do you mean believe in as a sense um, can do like a deep playoff run or win their division? Because you have someone not like the Cowboys, but Washington or the Eagles who are two games back. I mean, do I believe they could win a playoff game? No. Do I believe they could win the division? Also, probably not, but maybe because the division's so weak, you know? Are these like legitimate contenders? Okay, let's... Let- Let's frame it as could they win a Got playoff it. game? Got it. Without either the other team not having a terrible performance yep. or a huge amount of luck. Like I don't want to be like conceivably, <laughs> yes, they could, but anyone you know. can win on any given day, Eddie. That's the answer. Exactly. I think Al Pacino told us that or something. But uh and this team, yeah. we fight for those Ooh. inches. <laughs> we crawl with our fingertips oh, for those it. inches. Is it Richard Nixon? <laughs> it's actually, I don't think that it was, was that bad. <laughs> well, I'm going to encourage you to listen to that when the episode comes out. I think that was that was like Frank doing Richard Nixon doing Al Pacino. <laughs> That's how deep my, my skills are. Yeah, it's a very it's a very specific impression. Can you imagine going on like a late night show? Like, here's Frank. He's really good at impressions. All right. This is Bill Clinton doing Bill Cosby doing Norm MacDonald. Are we ready? <laughs> yeah, okay, go on, Frank. It, Frank. Stand <laughs> and deliver. Nail that one. Oh, I can't. Too tough. Bengals, Raiders, Chargers. Who is for real? Are none of them for real? Do you think all of them are capable of winning a playoff game if they get themselves into the postseason? I think Chargers would be my top pick there, and then the Bengals, and then the Raiders. I say, first off, I think the Chargers could make a deep run. I mean, I think they're still legitimate Super Bowl contenders. The only worry there is if they run into a team that can run the ball because their run defense is the worst in the league, and it showed. I mean, 
when you look at the stat line for the Ravens, it was nothing super impressive except that they just ran at will on them. You know, Lamar Jackson didn't have a great stat line, um, but none of the running backs in particular went off. But, you know, I think they averaged four and a half yards. So Chargers, I think, are definite legitimate contenders. I picked the Bengals over the Raiders just because I think the Raiders were in a unique situation this week where they were playing a team that I think is not that great. And this whole John Gruden isn't going to have an effect on this team. Look at how well they did. I think that's kind of just hidden because the Broncos aren't very good. I think that will come out a little more. And I think you will start to see some issues with the team that is going to be in a little bit of a disarray in these next few weeks with the whole rearranging. You know, it's it's easy on a short-term fix, but I don't think on a long-term fix it's going to work. Um, and they just don't, to me, don't seem that great of an all-around team. Carr's doing great, but otherwise, Carr and Ruggs, you know, well, yeah, I'm going to stick with the Bengals. I think, I don't know, something about them. I just kind of, I kind of, I kind of like them. I'd, I'd probably agree with Frank's kind of, reasoning basically charges bengals and um and the raiders i think the thing with the charges is that which is probably the problem with the bengals at the moment is that the Chargers have had a pretty difficult schedule whereas the bengals have had a pretty soft schedule but uh, so i'd feel like in the playoffs if you're going to be playing better teams the Chargers probably have that with them at the moment um but like frank says if they go up against someone with a good running game that's a serious problem for them with the Bengals, I think you can... I know they've had a soft schedule, but I think you can be a good team by beating bad teams well. And I think their defense is kind of pretty understated at the moment for uh, kind of the the stats it's putting up. And I think the Burroughs is becoming a pretty solid QB, uh, franchise QB. Uh, the Raiders, I don't know. There's just always this feeling, like you say, I'm a bit of a doubter, with, just in the way you doubt the Chargers. I just feel like something doesn't click. I don't know why. I just don't, I don't, I don't see it. I don't feel it again, call it a feeling, but there's just a confidence issue I have with the Raiders and the kind of John Gruden's going to send us another email, mm. Sam. You should have seen what he said. <laughs> Did you get the long, the long email <laughs> last time? Yeah. Yeah, he touched every one of his normal hot topics. It but was don't worry, e- ESPN will get it soon because they've tapped oh, into yeah. emails anyway. <laughs> yeah, they can have a nice round two on a news report. I would say this week has made it a lot closer than it was, though, between the Bengals and Chargers because a couple of people have, you know, the Lions have been heartbroken recently in the last couple of games against some pretty good teams. And yeah. I think the Bengals are kind of performing at the moment. You can only beat what's in front of you and they've beaten them pretty well. So it, it it's a lot closer, but I'd still put the Chargers just ahead because they have beaten better opposition than the Bengals at the moment. And going into a playoff game, I kind of prefer that. All right. I got two more subsets. Okay. So the next group is the the five and one okay. teams. Which of these five and one teams do you not really believe in? Because at this point, I think Packers. you've got to assume... They're all making the. <laughs> I think at this point we got to assume they're all making the playoffs, barring a catastrophic collapse. Particularly as a lot of them are in divisions that are not that strong, so they actually have the luxury of not needing to do a lot from here on in, just to make secure their playoff spot. So, the Ravens, the Cowboys, 
or the Packers. Frank, you've already said it. Yeah. I, yeah, I'll stick with the Packers. I really like the Cowboys. And I've kind of said since week one, when I watched them lose to Tampa Bay, I kind of thought they were a real legitimate contender for the Super Bowl. And it pains me to say that being a Giants fan and no, and also just kind of knowing in general how much they seem to choke when it matters in the past decade or two now. Um, but they look for real. I mean, their, their offense is so stacked. I, I can see them putting up 40 a game, no problem. You know, they put up what against the Patriots? What was it? They just beat them 30 and they turned the ball over twice in the end zone and played a pretty poor game with, I think they had over a hundred yards and penalties You know, and they still put up a decent amount. So if that's the worst they play and they still can put up those numbers, I think they're legitimate. The Packers to me, you have Aaron Rodgers, but yeah, and their defense has been hurt. So maybe if they can get some people back, they'll be better, but I just don't trust that defense. And I think if you can get in Rodgers head a little bit and kind of get some pressure on him, he'll, he'll fold and he won't, he'll try and do too much and they won't come through. So, uh, and the Ravens, I mean, I'm really impressed with Lamar Jackson this year. I think he has stepped up and he is definitely the leader on that field and is leading them to wins. I mean, they look much better this year than they did last year. Just the overall like morale and feel of their offense looks much better. I'll agree with you. I feel like Lamar Jackson is the player. If Labeling a quarterback who's previously won the, the MVP as a kind of most improved seems a bit dumb, but in some ways he seems to have made that legitimate step into the elite set of quarterbacks in a way that it felt sometimes before he was one dimensional and that you weren't quite certain as to whether or not he deserved to be in that sort of exclusive list. Now, I got a question for you though, Frank. Is part of the reason why you don't believe in the Packers is it's just because Aaron Rodgers has spent his entire life owning you? <laughs> I did really enjoy that. I enjoyed it for two reasons. One, I do like how he has fun playing football. You know, as annoying and dorky as he is, he definitely enjoys it. You know what I mean? And he understands that he's playing a game for a living and he's making millions and millions of dollars and and these people are coming to watch them and he can just rip into them. I, I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. The other reason I thought it was funny that he gave them the discount double check and then the, I fucking own you to all their fans is how enraged fans get as if like this is the end all be all and they're not watching a form of entertainment. I mean, I listened to the radio this morning and there was fans calling in to NFL Network just berating Aaron Rodgers saying he's absolute trash and like he'll never accomplish anything and he's not Tom Brady and he's garbage like it's a relax it's a game and he's having fun you know like take a chill it, it's just so funny to see people go off the rails off of something like that so I actually enjoyed that I thought that was funny also it's not like what he said was offensive right it would be a different thing if he had just squared up to the Bears fans and yelled, like screamed yeah. profanity and insulted them. Ugly. Just the fact that you he know, just said, like... <laughs> oh. "Yeah," just the fact that he said, "All my life, I've owned you, and I still own you." He's twenty-two and five against them. That was the best. People were like, "He doesn't own us." It's like, "Oh, he's twenty-two and five against the Bears." That's, I saw it was 
it was, I think, top three best ever records against a single opponent for any quarterback in the history of the NFL. So he owns them more than any other QB has ever owned a team almost. So Sam, for for Frank, it's the Packers. Who is it for you that you don't quite believe in? I get your answer could be you believe in them all. It could. Uh, but I, I'm with Frank. There's something about that 38-3 loss at the start of the season that I just haven't shaken off about the Packers. I, I, I. Do you feel them just before you? Do you feel the same way about the Bills? No, because there's something still a little bit awkward about the Packers. I, I, I don't know what it is. Like this, I don't really see them like getting away from teams that well. It, I don't know. Again, I just, it, I just don't have that feeling about them. Uh, I agree with Frank on the Cowboys, though. You just think every single time they're very, very easily going to put up thirty plus in almost any game. So if their defense does anything, they're probably going to win a game. So that's something really good going for them, and I have a lot of confidence in them for that reason. Um, but yeah, I'm putting the Packers down there. And the final subset then is teams with a losing record who you think would be the most dangerous if they actually managed to make the playoffs. So we've got the Niners at two and three, the Patriots at two and four, the Colts at two and four. And I'll throw in... Actually, I'll leave it at those three because I actually think looking at the losing records teams, there's not a lot who I think have a would be that would be that scary if they actually made it there. The Patriots are trash. I am so yeah, sick they... of everyone jumping on the the Patriots. You know, oh, every game's been so close. They they could have won all these games, but they don't, and they're getting lucky that they're staying close in these games. The Cowboys put up. 600 yards of offense against the Patriots. And then people have the audacity to say Patriots have a top defense in the NFL. The audacity. <laughs> the audacity. How oh my word. They? Were you calling into NFL Network this morning? No, but this was another caller. Rogers is trash. And this is, this is audacious. People still think they have a top defense just because it's Belichick. Their defense is trash. It's not good. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's trash. It's not great. It's, it's maybe not. Both elite. of them aren't great, right? And they're offense but, as well. They're, they're not posting big yards or big points in almost any game. They're mediocre, probably. Now, but here's my question for you, Frank, a little bit. You said with, with the Cowboys, you feel as if they get in their own way at times, but when they don't, they look great. Isn't that a kind of a cause for concern? That if you're going to be sloppy, if you're going to have dumb turnovers, and if you're going to give away bad penalties that against good teams, you're not going to get away with those mistakes. So against the Patriots, the Patriots allowed them. I mean... Now, here's one question I have for you, Frank, on the... Not that we're going to do into too, too much detail in the individual games. Should, should Bourne have just gone down at the one-yard line and eked out some more of the clock and assume that the Patriots are going to be able to punch it in? Yes. I thought that... So... What Eddie's referring to is the Patriots were up and then Mac Jones threw a pick six to Trayvon Diggs, who is an absolute animal, um, and scored a touchdown. And then they went up, the Cowboys went up, and then the ensuing 
drive, the first play of the drive, uh, Mac Jones throws a 65, right? 75 yard touchdown pass. I don't, when he caught it and he was running down, I thought he's going to stop at the one and they're going to run the clock out. And I was ready to just throw my remote through the, through the TV. But when I saw him run into the end zone, I was genuinely happy that he ran into the end zone because as soon as he hit in, I looked at the clock and I said, oh, there's still tons of time left for Prescott to drive down the field and at least tie this game up. It was not the right move. I get it. it. It's it's a hindsight thing, right? I don't know if it is because that you have to believe that that is something Bill Belichick would teach. We've talked before about some of the intricacies of Belichick's coaching, like the never reach for a pylon. He's one of the only coaches that super instills that you never reach for a pylon because guess what? You could fumble at the goal line, just like Dak Prescott did, although it wasn't for the pylon, but he has those things that he really teaches. And I have to imagine that's one of them. You know, like if you are going to score with a minute left, don't score, stop, and let's run the clock out. Well, so it was it was the other side of the two minute warning, so they could probably, in the end, the 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 uh, Cowboys got the back of the ball back with two minutes and eleven seconds left. I guess you could have. I think they had two timeouts. I think when they had their final, because they kind of even the Cowboys even kind of like messed it up when they ended up being just short on that long play that set up the game time field goal, where I think they thought they had the first down. So they thought they were going to be able to just cl- like you know clock clock it and 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 have a couple of attempts at the end zone and then end up having to sort of rush on to to call the timeout and get the field goal up. How much of an impact would it have changed? So maybe you're talking about they get the ball back with a minute forty five instead of instead of two eleven. It probably doesn't have a massive swing on what happens, but yeah, I just it's just one of those things where you never know. But anyway, back to the original question. So you've dismissed the Patriots. Do you, would you be worried about pay, playing the Niners? Would you be worried about playing the Colts? I, I'm always – I'll be quick, and then Sam can jump in. I'm always worried about the, playing the Niners, just something about they can scheme really well. I think they have the best coaching staff in the National Football League. So there's always a worry that they can put together a good game. I'm not super worried about Jimmy G or Trey Lance at this point, so I think – offensively i'm not super worried the colts i've i picked the colts to make the playoffs and i'm i watch them i think they're a pretty good team especially they just need to figure out who they are a little more jonathan taylor is tearing it up at running back right now and he's still not even getting 20 carries a game yet so i think as the season goes on he's going to get a bigger workload and i think that's going to help them out and take some of that pressure off carson wentz and they're going to be one of those – they're kind of going to have like a Titans offense where they're super well-rounded and they have a quarterback who can throw really well, but they can also kind of rely on that run game to just set the tone. So they they definitely scare me if they can make it in. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think the Colts are actually starting to identify more as a bit of a big play team as well. I was looking at the – because the last three or four games have actually performed really well, but when you look – in the last two games, they've had a 42-yard play, 51, 52, 76, and 83. And in my head, I just think that 
like Frank, you're right about the fact that the identity thing for the Colts is there. But I think Wentz is starting to play well. They're starting to understand what to do against teams and maybe where they're good. And I think that if they keep going on that curve, then I'd be probably more... At the moment, I'd be more concerned about the Colts than the Niners. So I'd probably go Colts, Niners, Patriots in that respect. I think the Niners' playoff hopes are looking pretty slim at the moment because just with the start the Cardinals have had, and then I think the Rams I think the Rams are the best team in that division, even if the Cardinals are the only unbeaten team in the NFL. And so it's hard to see the Rams slowing down and losing that many games. The Cardinals obviously have a pretty decent lead over the Niners at this point. So, Eddie, let me give you this. I- I'll give you a question then. Can you mm. rank? Fire away. Rank these teams. Cards, Bills, Rams, Packers, Cowboys, Ravens. So those are the teams that have now kind of made their way to the top so far. I still think the Rams might be the best team in the NFL. Even, so I think I'd put the Rams Even after one. losing to the Cards. Even after losing okay. to the Cards. I think I'd put the Bills two, but then let's see what happens to them tonight as well because it's an interesting test against a decent Titans team. Oh, I forgot the Bucks. That Sorry. knows what they're good at. Bucks are one okay. loss, right? And the Bucks still wouldn't have figured. Yeah, Bucks wouldn't have figured yet in my list. Okay, Rams, Bills. Who's your third? Cards, Packers, Cowboys, tough. Ravens, now. Bucks. So I'll put the Packers at the bottom okay. of that list. Good, good call. <laughs> I'm gonna put the car. I'm gonna put the Bucks second last on that list. Okay. Because even though I think uh, I'm I'm torn because I haven't been super impressed by them so far in the regular season, but then I wasn't impressed by them last year in the regular season. And you just know that they have so much experience there that if they are healthy going into the postseason, that they will be as hard to beat as anyone else. But I still don't love what I see from them. They seem to have dropped off a little defensively and you just fear that age will sort of become a factor at some point over the course of the season. I'm going to put the Ravens above the Cardinals. Wow. 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 Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, that's Bill Cosby doing <laughs> Owen Wilson. <laughs> Frank Sinatra doing Owen Wilson. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, I think. But I, as I said, I'm not a big power rankings person. We don't really do power rankings, although we kind of do power every rankings week. every week. And <laughs> every week we hate doing it. Every week we hate it, but we disclaim that we don't do it. No, I've I've gotten really good at having Eddie say he doesn't do power rankings and then making him put some teams into a definitive list. <laughs> I get to do it every week to him. But yeah, I, you know, and the next few weeks are going to answer a lot of those questions, right? Because a lot of these teams play tougher opponents and then you'll get a better sense. And I think until the midway point of the season, even two thirds of the way in, it's difficult. You know, the Cardinals haven't really had any issues with major issues with injuries yet. Who knows what, you know, that's the big question mark for them. Can Murray stay healthy? And that was the reason I kind of picked the, by the, the, the Browns this week. And then it was the Browns who had a nightmare and injury wise with, with Baker being the one who was hurt and then came back in. And then, you know, now, 
both running backs are out, missing both their tackles. How, Wheels kind of came off for them over the course of the How do game. you feel about the Browns? The thing I hated about their performance on Sunday was that they have this identity, which I felt like against the Chargers, they stuck to who they were, which was they're going to rely so heavily on the run game. And I know without without Chubb that they lost the sort of whatever you want to call it, thunder and lightning approach that they can have with with their two running backs. And you can't, you can't ground and pound quite as much. I did just feel they barely ran the ball against the Cardinals, even when they started to get back into the game, because, you know, they were out of it, then they sort of worked their way back in, and then they had possessions. I mean, they, they had the ball before that Baker Mayfield injury and turnover. I think they were down 10 at that point with the ball in the Cardinals' half. So they were very much in a situ- scenario where if you score a touchdown here, it's game on. And they kept kind of up until that injury, getting themselves kind of back in the game. And then they just weren't doing the things. And it's what I respect about the Ravens so much this year is that the Ravens have embraced that identity. And even when they're losing, they don't start to abandon it and get desperate. And what I fear with the Browns is maybe they're one year of maturity away from just having that confidence in themselves to be losing and saying, we're going to stay with plan A right now. And I feel like their panic sets in quickly with them, where as soon as they fall behind, they feel like, uh-oh, we can't keep running the ball because then the, the clock's going to become a factor. And you know maybe we haven't had as much success early on as we expected to have. Whereas I do think a run game, if you're good at it, it's a commitment to it because you kind of feel like we're going to tire them out. We're going to drag their line all over the place. It's what you see the Titans do so well, where they can have the run game cannot work for three quarters. And then all of a sudden, the fourth quarter, it's unstoppable because they've just tired you out and they've dragged you all over the field. And then all of a sudden, those holes are there that weren't there five minutes into the game. That would be my fear. But they're also getting killed by injuries. I mean, OBJ is not healthy. They're obviously missing Landry, missing both tackles now, missing both running backs. Now, a quarterback who's at Call best, the Niners. 60, 70%. Yeah. Eddie, maybe, the, maybe the this is the curse the of Eddie. Any team that Eddie starts to like, they just get decimated by injuries. <laughs> nah, I mean, you're you're the one with the curse, but sure, maybe maybe well, this is remember my the slight. the Steelers That's have won every game since. Well, since Frank said that the Steelers were losing every game this season, they've now won the last two. <laughs> so it, that could be a good little curse turnaround. But you um. We obviously mentioned all those teams, but what about the Chiefs? Like, I know they got back on track with a win, but it was still a pretty sloppy win. You know, what was it? Three more turnovers for Mahomes. That that snap fumble interception was pretty funny. One of the worst <laughs> things I've ever seen a quarterback was, do ever. At any level. Was, I mean, like high school, Pop Warner. That was one of the worst things I've ever seen. And I get the snap fumbled and it was a bad snap and he panicked, but it doesn't matter. You don't just run to the left and just throw the ball like a grenade. Loop it eight yards. (laughs) uh, But I'll tell you, I think that second half could have been the turning point for them because they've got an easy. I'm not willing. They've got an easy schedule, like we said last week, coming up, and I think they came in came into that second half and said, "Enough is enough. We're playing like absolute trash," and. I think that could have been a decent start to turning it around and now cruising through these next few weeks and getting back on track. 
I mean, you saw that a little bit with Tyreek Hill. He got very um, sort of animated when he scored the touchdown that put them into the lead. And a honey badger at half. Did meant... you see him screaming at the coaches and stuff? Yeah. But then that also worries me, that you might get too much emotion coming into this and that there might be an overreaction. There was a kind of t- maybe too much confidence and calm that, hey, we're going to be able to switch it on. And then now it's pressure showing and cracks will be exposed by them suddenly feeling as if all oh, people are doubting us and no, we're going to show that we have it and we're going to show them week in, week out now. They're going to make the playoffs. They're just too good. And when they play bad teams, they teams just can't keep up with them. But I didn't see anything in that game that made me doubt the fact that if they play a good team, they play the Bills, even if they play the Packers, even if they played, you know, and that would obviously be in the Super Bowl, but, you know, like any host of teams where the opposition would just need to go into it saying we need to score 50, but we think we can score 50. And if we get two turnovers, two stops, we win this game. And I think there's seven or eight teams in the NFL who would feel comfortable in that. And I, I mean, I even think the Raiders would feel comfortable knowing that that was the, the situation. So I think they didn't, they'll make the playoffs. They'll, they'll, they'll beat up on bad teams, but I don't give them much hope of winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. So, I mean, overall it was, it was an exciting weekend for, for NFL. I mean, I think I had some more interest in it from a financial aspect, um, but made it more thrilling or stressful, I guess. But one of the takeaways of being stressed out is I don't know how you can be a Minnesota Vikings fan. I don't, the risk for heart attack on that team. Why is it every week that it's like a nail biter every week, no matter who they play. It's crazy to me how close every one of their games gets. And I don't know if it's, they just can't put teams away. If it's bad coaching, if it's just the mentality, but it's, it's gotta be so frustrating to watch a team that, could be leading their division right now, you know, if it weren't for the fact that they just get stuck in these close games and it's a crapshoot whether they're going to win or lose in the last minute every game. It's crazy. I mean, there was a there was a point in that game, what was it, when they were like third and eight, eight-point lead, two minutes left, and all they did was kind of run it a few times, got, were getting nowhere with it, continued to run third down, then fourth down punted, and it was like, yeah, okay, I understand, like, is Donald going to do, like, 80 yards in that kind of time with two-point conversion? No, nine, nine, 95, 96. <laughs> it was a good yeah, punt. It was a huge punt. Was a good I saw that punt. punt and said, oh, okay, I think, I think it's going to be okay. Yeah. And then had them fourth down fourth and eight. in their own end zone. And allow a 26-yard play or whatever it was, which then changed the momentum. And then they had them fourth down again, and they allow them to get it on another fourth down. I mean, they they could they had they had probably in the final three minutes five plays where all they needed to do was make a play, nothing spectacular, just a play, and they win that game there and then. And you know, I mean, on the on the on the game tying drive, the, all they needed was that on either of those fourth downs or on the two point conversion, which was like the easiest two point conversion I've ever seen. Just a little shovel pass, and he just 
goes in. I mean, you know, usually two point conversions, you do see an element of panic, even when they work kind of well, that the quarterback's rolling out and the kind of play starts to break down a little bit and then someone's wide open. But this was just, oh no, we scored. As if we had four attempts and we've just got it on the first. Yeah, and, and it shows you how confident they were because that's not, that's a slightly risky call to call like a, a fake inside shuffle pass as your two point conversion. You know, that's like something the Chiefs would do. But to be the Panthers and have come back from that and say like, oh yeah, let's pull this half a trick play out for the two points. I'm confident. Like that just shows you they knew the mindset of the Vikings there. I, but I mean, you go through their games. It's, it, it's crazy to me. I mean, you have, they lose to the Bengals 27, 24. They beat the cards 34, 33. They lose to the Browns 14 to seven. They beat the lions 19 to seven. No, they lost. They lost to the cards. Sorry. Lost to the cards 34, 33. Yeah. Sorry. Lost to the cards. And missed, and missed yep. the game-winning field goal from whatever it was thirty yards. Yeah, beat the, the Vikings, potential game-winning uh, beat the field Lions goal. As, with the game-winning field goal. Beat themselves. That's yeah. It's uh, it's 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 got to be tough. I mean, I guess you take that over being a Giants fan and watching them basically look like a JV team compared to the Rams. But yeah, it's. I still think the Vikings are a good team. I think they're a legitimate contender. I think they can win a few games. And Kirk Cousins looks great. <laughs> Did you see last week he gave a he gave his coach Yeah. You like that. <laughs> yeah, on that note, should we switch things over to the interview? I think everyone will enjoy it and get something positive out of it for sure. Hopefully everyone gets something positive. <laughs> And welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We are delighted to be joined by our guest this week, who is Nathan Horrocks, former National Hunt jockey and now co-founder of Equine Productions and Jockey Cam. Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. No, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's always a, a joy to come on to uh, a podcast that's involved with sport and, uh, you know, and filmmaking and, you know, just telling stories around uh, our industry and uh, I'm really excited to be on the show. Yeah, it's great. And Frank, you, we will have already kind of gone around the horn, I guess, pre-interview, but uh, how are you doing? No, I'm doing great. I'm actually really excited for the interview. I watched a bunch of the videos and you know, we were talking a little off air, but after watching them, I just really was getting excited for horse racing. And it, it actually made me go and look at Breeders' Cup and see if they were releasing more tickets. And I saw that they actually were. Uh, opening up tickets uh, this week, so I looked at you. You inspired me just in the right time that I didn't miss the the release of the tickets. So hopefully, I can get to Breeders' Cup because it's not too far in San Diego this year for me. So I'm I'm excited. And and Nathan, I guess maybe that's a good starting. Well, jumping off part for us, obviously, maybe this is going to kind of go backwards through your career to a certain extent, but. Now, in your involvement in terms of equine productions and uh, jockey cam, you're now based in the United States, and I know you've actually been involved in the Breeders' Cup in the past. How? Yeah, how does no, that work? Uh, the Breeders' Cup were our first was was our first client really, actually in in the U.S. Um, Pete Rotondo, who unfortunately is not with with the Breeders' Cup anymore. Um, he um, he spoke to us in I think it was 2017 when Breeders' Cup was held at Delmar for the 
first time, if I'm if I'm correct. I think Frank will, he's, Frank's nodding. Um, so I, I think that was I think that was the right time, and um, they hired us to come over. Um, it was sponsored by Aston Martin at the time, so it was a big uh, a big deal that that uh, you know we'd been bringing this technology over from uh, from the UK to to the US and um we had it on Mike Smith on every one of his rides and it was it was just great working with Mike and and NBC and the Breeders Cup team um since then uh you know we've done um, lots of jockey cam work around the world uh you know Hong Kong um Melbourne you know the Melbourne Cup which which has been which has been great going down there but also the likes of the Art de Triomphe and um you know and a lot of the stuff in the UK so it's um it's been a real journey um getting here i think what's most exciting about it really is is um you know now we can finally show what's going on in the race you know when we're watching that big wide angle of horse racing that we see day in and day out we don't actually see the skill set of the horse and rider um you know because it's so far away and it kind of you know these guys are so good or these guys and girls are so good i should say um you know we don't appreciate the skill set and I think everybody that's probably listened to this is a sports fan or or, or played some sport of in, in some way, shape or form. So we can relate to a lot of sports. But unless you've travelled at 45 miles an hour, standing on six inches of carbon Kevlar, holding onto a set of reins, you know, on a half ton thoroughbred that has a mind of its own, till you've physically done that is very hard to relate to. So I think bringing this technology in and putting the audience in the saddle within the race, showing those split decisions that these guys and girls have to make is, uh, is a key thing to our sport, really. Yeah, no, I think you make a good point right there, which is, I, I mean, I have this discussion all the time. I'm sort of, you know, having grown up in the US and living in Europe and, and having British parents and stuff. So you always get into these more cultural debates on sports and that people won't have a certain level of respect. You know, you'll get British people who don't like baseball or Americans who think that cricket's really easy or, or whatever it is. And fundamentally, my point is always until you've actually tried it to appreciate the level of skill that goes into any aspect of a sport, it's very difficult to judge because professional athletes, for the most part, make it look really simple. And I do think it's the interesting, I mean, when we had Sean Levy on, we spoke to him a little bit about this, is the vast majority, even of people who are passionate about the racing industry, will not have ridden horses much, and certainly not competitively. And so their ability to then adequately or effectively judge what the jockey is doing and their performance, it's really hard when you've never you've never done it. I always think that's an, kind of an interesting side to the sport. Well, well, I think it's a great point that Ed, and and I think you know we're all guilty of this. I was guilty of it. We used to have a th a show on in the UK called Ski Sunday, and I used to love watching the ski, you know, the World Championships of skiing. And I remember thinking, oh, that looks really cool. I think I could do that till I put on a set of skis <laughs> and had that moment of that meltdown on the mountain when you can't get down or you can't stand up, and that meltdown of like, why is this so hard? You know, it's um, you know, it's a real moment for me to go. All right, I need to appreciate the skill set more of what athletes bring to the table. You know, when remember going to Wimbledon for the first time. Uh, my mum's a huge tennis fan, and we and you know managed to get us tickets, and it was the first time I'd actually sat down you know behind watching a tennis player hit the ball and it's the physis physicality of actually hitting it but also shaping the ball and and the sound it makes when it comes off a, a racket makes a completely different sound to, to when I actually hit a tennis ball you know it's the same in golf you know it's that same thing watching these athletes 
right next to them and and being involved with it, I think you don't feel the appreciation of of, of what they bring to the uh, bring to the sport till you've actually physically tried it yourself. And I, th- I think that's a that's a huge point that you brought up there, really. Yeah, I, I mean, for, so for me, I play a lot of hockey. I played hockey my whole life, and when you go to watch a hockey game. It looks fast, but at the same time, you can kind of see what's going on and see like where plays are developing. But then once you actually play the game, you realize how fast and how quick it is and, and how you know like instantaneous decisions, like how quickly they're made. And I love horse racing, but you know I, I've never really ridden horses. And it wasn't until I saw the jockey cam footage for like the first time that you really get a feel for, one, how fast they're going and two, kind of almost how limited their range of vision is, but yet they're still able to do so much on the horse. You know, they're able to maneuver it and position it and, and pull it out if need be and kind of get out of trouble and, and things like that. And then when you add the jumps to it, I mean, that just makes it even more amazing with how little they can see of the jump and how little the horse can see of the jump. And it, 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 the appreciation once you see that jockey cam footage is, is so, so amazing. No, I'm, I'm glad it's I'm glad it's doing that, really, uh, Frankie. Because um, I think the other thing that we don't kind of get the grasp of what's happening is it's just everything. It's not just if, if we have an eight runner race, that's not not eight brains out there. You know, that's sixteen because you know horses are making decisions as well. They might want to go left when you're wanting to go right. You know, because they're you know they're instinctive animals. You know, and you're trying to communicate with them. You know, the best way possible, whether it's through your fingertips holding the reins or your feet squeezing them or or your voice, you know, people don't realise how much we use our voices in a race. You know, we're constantly communicating. Horses are like people, you know, they're either, you know, lazy, they're, you know, can be can be um, aggressive, they can be, you know, timid and nervous. So you've got to work out what's the best way of um, of communicating with these animals. And, um, and I think if anything, you know, the visuals are helping us understand slowly what's going on within a race and, and the split decision, split decision, uh, um, things that they these guys have to do and so then i guess i have to admit i mean i think jockey cam will be familiar to almost anyone who's ever watched horse racing because you do see it so regularly now i what i guess if we use that as this is the focus of, of the discussion for now but what what goes into that in terms of how do you get a jockey to agree to it is it the jockey's decision is it you know the owner has to be involved the trainer has to be involved what's the sort of process then is it the, the, the television network covering it who then says one of the jockeys has to take the jockey cam for this race? What's that process like? Yeah, that process is actually the hardest part of it, actually. You know, the technology bit is, you know, I'm going to I'm going to sound silly here saying it was easy because it hasn't been easy. It's been a, you know, been a real big journey to get here because the camera is uh, been safety tested. So, you know, we do have um, riders that go down every now and again, in in, in particular, uh, you know, national hunt racing, jump racing, you know, one in seven rides, a, a rider will come off a horse. So that camera needs to be safe. So there was a lot of safety testing going into um, developing the camera. Um, so we had to get trust from the riders and the authorities, um, the British Horse Racing Authorities uh, back in the UK, the, the Dr. Jerry Hill was a key part of that. But what we also did was we worked with the riders of what it would look like and what shape it should be and where it should go. Um, so we worked with, you know, with me being an ex-jockey obviously helped, but we wanted, you know, is the next generation of jockeys that we wanted to work with to make sure that they were happy wearing it. Um, and I, was, I would say, you know, 99.9% of the time, the jockeys are very, very happy to wear it. But there's then that little... You know, it's the big race. It's the Kentucky Derby or something, and 
and we've got, you know, we've asked the guy that's riding the favourite and all of a sudden they become nervous and like, oh, no, no, not this, not this time, you know. So we do get that every now and again. I understand that because I was very superstitious when I was riding. You know, I would always put my right boot on first before my left boot and things like that. Sport's full of these little things. So that can happen. Um, regards to the owners and, and, and trainers, what happens is that the, the jockey cam weighs around about half a pound with the camera on the jockey's head and they carry a little tiny transmitter on the jockey's back. And that's been safety tested as well to to transmit the picture, basically. And um, that whole process is the, so they carry exactly the same weight as anybody else. So there's no difference to whoever's wearing the camera, um, you know, whether it be, you, you know, the, the you know, the, the favorite or whatever. You know, they're all carrying the same weight. So they weigh out with this device. They're carrying the same weight as they would be if they weren't wearing the camera. So there's never really any issues from the trainer or the um, or the owners um in fact sometimes they quite they kind of like it because they get to see it back but um you know when nbc first approaches about this their goal is we want a camera on every rider in the kentucky derby in the next 10 years now <laughs> easier said than done because it's it logistically it's very hard at the moment and the technology is not quite there yet so we're only able to do like two or three live cameras in a race at the moment we're currently only at two just because of the frequencies we have to you know get in and and all that sort of stuff, but um, generally it's the you know it's the broadcaster um, or the simulcaster as as I'm learning here you know living in the US that's what we call it. Um, they're the people that hire us, and then we work within the sport. And then lucky enough, that's you know um, it's great that we can work with the racetrack and the stewards and and the, and the participants. But everyone wants to make it work, and um, and lucky enough that the sport's been really um, you know has given us great access to make this thing uh, you know bring it to you guys back at home. Yeah, I, it's it's funny you mentioned about, you know, the jockeys kind of wanting to be on board. And I'm sure you have jockeys that are a lot more open to it because of their personality. So one that comes to mind is Frankie Dettori. I know he's had the jockey cam on before. And I think you even have a, a like a flying dismount on, with the jockey cam. I think I've seen that, which is really awesome. Um, but I have to say, no disrespect, but I've never seen Ryan Moore wear a jockey cam. And that doesn't kind of surprise me. <laughs> no, uh, Ryan is his own is his own being. Um, and he, he laughs even now. I'll still every now and again go, come on, Ryan, when am I going to put this on you? And for some reason, Ryan's always been like that. He's always been, you know, a bit standoffish with things like this. And he just wants to get the job done. And I understand that. I really do. However, you know, my argument with the likes of the Ryan Moores in this world, you know, and I've, I've, had, I've had these words within myself. I've said, you know, um, something inspired you to get into the sport. You know, um, you know, you're in a very, very privileged position, you know, you're getting paid to do what you love. Um, and I think when you're getting paid to do something that you love, whatever it is, whatever world you're working in, you need to give back a little bit. Um, and I'm not saying that Ryan Moore should wear a jockey cam, but I'm just saying you should give back a little bit. And, um, and you know, that's that's my always my argument because, you know, the sport's been very good to me and I've always tried to give back. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people should should follow suit as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. And if you don't have those personalities that are really engaging and, ins and inspiring within the sport, within any sport, then it's, you know, those are what attract people to get involved. And they sort of, and this is with the utmost, I mean, Ryan Moore is obviously an incredible jockey, but I don't think a lot of people necessarily see the personality that he gives across and think that's exactly what I want to be when I sort of grow up, whilst he is, you know, professional and reliable and, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, 
you know meets checks all the boxes well yeah no and I, and I think if you, you're hitting a real, a real great point there but um you know if it what Frank and has been fantastic for our uh, industry and in fact the trailer came out today of the new film of his that's come out that we've been that we've been helping out with as well which is called Ditori which comes out in uh, I think it comes out in November which is I'm really excited for you guys to see I've been lucky enough to see this and um it's it's going to be a, a great now and a half of a, a of a human story within this within this crazy world of horse racing but you know if it wasn't for the likes of the Steve Corth and Cassius Mewson you know you know coming from America we, we wouldn't have had Frank Editore, because he kind of modelled himself on those guys, and they were always very open and and chatty about the about the spot. Because we all need to be inspired to to get back into it, you know. And um, I think that's one thing that I've always tried to do is try and inspire the next generation of um, of you know horse racing fans, really. And and sport does is a great way of uh, telling human stories, and and I think that's a, a key thing to to our sport, really. And I guess we can keep jumping around a little bit within your career then, because obviously you had this background in as a jockey and around 10 years as a professional jockey in the United Kingdom. Obviously not necessarily hitting the heights that you might have hoped to have done. What was that sort of experience like as a day-to-day jockey? Very kind, jockey? Ed, very kind. <laughs> as a day-to-day <laughs> jockey, just sort of <laughs> making a living. What was that like? Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I think that's one thing that um, that hasn't really been shown is the hardship of 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 the life of a jockey. You know, yeah, you know, it's you know, it's great when you have a winner. You know, um, you know, it's it feels it feels fantastic. You know, but um, you know, if, if a jockey's doing it doing well, they're probably getting around about fifteen to twenty percent strike win strike rate now. If you if you were a football team or a hockey team, <laughs> you know with a twenty percent strike rate, uh, win strike rate, you, you know you're not going to be around very long, are you? Do you know what I mean? You need to be doing much better than that. So I think one thing that people don't understand or the public doesn't understand is um, the amount of time that you're losing, and that can take its toll on you um, as a sports person because we're competitive and we want to we want to win, um, but you know most of the time you're getting beat. And then the other side of that is the dieting that that people don't understand, you know, is the constant trying to beat the scales, you know. Um, I remember having a, a strong conversation with a member of uh, the press. Uh, he wasn't very happy that one of the jockeys didn't give him a great interview after uh, after a race and called him called him miserable. And um, and I said to him, um, do you get uh, grumpy when you're hungry? And his answer was yes, like most people. Uh, and I said, well, imagine waking up like that every day. You know that that does take its toll on you. Is this um, this constant battle for uh, for not just food but for water as well? Because they're constantly trying to get rid of weight. So there's two ways of getting rid of weight. There's there's not eating and then you know getting rid of water. And you know that's why they spend a lot of time in the sauna. Um, you know, and that can be can that can take its toll on you. You know that that constant battling with the with the scales and uh, and then there's and then there's the other side of it, which is the amount of traveling that these guys these guys and girls do. You know, there's a lot of traveling involved. So it's a lot of time on your own, with your own thoughts, getting beat all the time, feeling hungry. You know, it just starts weighing you down and chipping away at you over time. So it's amazing that um you know we've had champions likes of Sir Anthony McCoy been around for so long time Frankie riding till he's 50 I mean it's absolutely amazing it's just you know um you know I take my heart off to those people that, that have carried on like that in in, in this uh, in this sport because uh, 
I only lasted 10 years and uh, and there was a reason why I didn't I only lasted 10 years of that and that's because I didn't like hospital food um so I wanted so I wanted to do something else and that's why I got into filmmaking and I think that's actually a nice segue in, into your film uh which you wrote and directed called The Fall so for anyone who hasn't seen it I highly suggest you go and, and watch it it was re really great it it reminded me a little bit almost of like it had a, like a black mirror feel to it but with sports and kind of showing the you know like a little bit of the dark side of how social media and this, you know, like instant technological feedback can really affect a person, you, you know, and kind of showing like the, you, you know, the, the harder, the hardships of that. And it was, it was really, really nice. Um, and I, I kind of just want to get your thoughts, you know, you, you had said off air, it's, it was a passion project of yours and, and, you know, kind of let us kind of give us the insight of, you know, how it came to be and in, you know, kind of where it came from the idea. Well, the the idea really came through um, through my own experience of uh, battling with my own uh, mental health. Um, you know, I I suffered, you know, from from depression uh, myself. Um, I, you know, I even I even tried to take my own life at one point. It was a you know it was a really really dark day. You know, I remember the day you know really well, and um, you know after that I I I got help. You know. You know, we've we've seen it. We've seen it in recent, you know, recent films or recent interviews. You know, uh, in in particularly men. You know, we we have there's a stigma against mental health. You know, we we're not very good at talking. Um, being a British man as well. You know, we're, <laughs> you know, we're very uh, very uptight at the best of times. But also being a working class Northern British man, there was all them, all those things as well that 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 uh, that kind of um, kind of hold you in really. Um, and you know, we're just not very good at kind of talking about you know, our, our issues or our problems. And, um, you know, then also being a sports person, um, you can't show weakness. You can't ever give anybody a, an inch to, you know, a, an advantage to you. So showing any weakness at all is, uh, is, is, is something that is, is a no, no in sport. And, um, so going through that whole experience of being a jockey, um, working within the industry, like I have done, um, and working with these athletes, I was I've gone from being an insider looking outwards and then from being an outsider looking inwards which was a real you know valid point for me to to go through that whole process and so what I did was through therapy I started writing the short story of um of a journey um after a bad day at the office every one of us you know listening to this and us on this call now we've all had a bad day at work um, and I wanted to show what a bad day at work looked like for a for an athlete, really, but in particular a jockey, because there's a um, with social media. Um, it wasn't around when I was riding, thankfully. You know, if I'd got beaten on a favourite or whatever, and walking back in, I'd have the uh, you know the odd bit of abuse hurled at me, which I still see from day to day now and again. Um, but social media has opened up a platform for people to not only uh, you know say I'm disappointed with your ride. But for some reason, it's given us the permission to be really, really hateful. And um, within the film, um, we use real tweets that were sent to jockeys and real messages that were sent to jockeys. And I think when people watch this, they'll uh, they'll be shocked at the um, the venom that that's used in this. And um, you know, when I, when I wrote the script, I showed it to my wife, and she's not from the horse racing background at all or sport. She 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 doesn't um, you know she has no idea why people would put themselves through this sort of thing you know and um when she read the script she's like 
you know, you're gonna have to calm the you know the the language down in the in the part where uh, he reads the tweets. And I said, no, they were actually real tweets that were sent to him. She she just was shocked by that. And so that what I wanted to do was, and it's funny you used to say it was quite dark, the film. I wanted to show the darker side of of where the sport can go, um, which isn't like me at all because I'm all about promoting the sport and I want people to get involved with our sport because it is a fantastic sport to be involved with because, you know, we've got, you know, the connection between animal and man and, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a great uh, sport to be involved with and, and the connections that you, that you, that you make. But um, with all those things that we were talking about earlier, you know, the dieting and all those pressures, there's those. And then you put the social media stuff on top of that. There could be a tipping point somewhere. And um, unfortunately, you know, last year, not last year, sorry, 2019, um, lost two very good jockeys in, in James Banks and uh, Grand National winning jockey uh, Liam Treadwell, who, um, you know, both took their lives and... Um, once I'd written this story, that's when I was like, right, I have to do something with this. I've, I've got to create something and I want to show the wider world what it actually feels like and what it looks like. So that was a that was a big thing for me, really, to get this whole thing started. No, I think, I mean, you've managed to put all of what you've just spoken about into you know, a relatively short viewing experience. So I do think, you know, anyone who wants to see it, who isn't familiar with the racing industry, it's not something that you have to be passionate about horse racing to find to be a compelling story, which I also think is a sign of how well done it was. I do think it's the interesting side of racing. I'm not sort of that heavily involved in social media. We do a bit through the podcast. It's just, you can guarantee after every race, who you know every people who have lost their bets go on social media and the the level of venom in what people say a just the constant conspiracy that it must have been a fix you know and any jockey that's fallen off must have taken a dive or any favorite that's not come in that it you know it must have been a predetermined outcome and you just see it it must be i would say you know 30 to 50 percent of what's being said post-race and that's even in situations where the winners performed extremely well or you know there's no credit given to anyone else involved in the race it's simply people unhappy that they've lost money and i do think you know we on the on the show and just in general love the sport for the sport itself and the betting is definitely a part of it but it's it's not the reason you're sort of necessarily watching the races it's one of the difficult parts of the sport where betting is so closely tied to most people's interest that it then leads to such sort of aggressive reactions to things that they then watch. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Ed. And, um, you know, cause horse racing and gambling go hand in hand, really, you know, um, yes, we've always been able to bet on sports, but it's usually been horse racing, which is the kind is the main thing for having a, having a flutter, you know, having a bet. And, um, you know, we can bet on all things now, you know, we can bet on the, you know, the, um, you know, the, the winner of the X Factor or the winner of America's Got Talent now, you know, I mean, we've got all these platforms where we can actually have a flutter on these, on these things that, that you know, where there's an outcome and, and with an outcome is a result. And if the result doesn't go your way, there's obviously an opinion um, and the platforms have, have opened up that, um, you know, it's given in a doorway to, to, for people to have an opinion. And sometimes that opinion, um, isn't how they were probably acting public, but because it's on social media and they're behind a whatever it is, you know, they're able to say what they want. And I think what this film is trying to do 
is trying to say, with your reaction, there is an effect on somebody. Um, and it's not just the jockey that's had the had the bad day at the office. It's the people around him. You know, it's his partner. It's his family. Um, you know, that's that's what I wanted to show, really, that uh, at the end of the day, you know, the sports people are humans. We've we've seen it with Naomi Osaka, at the, you know, in, in, in the tennis. You know, she's, you know, raised her hand saying, you know, like, this has got to stop. You know, this the, the way we, we treat each other. Um, you know, we've seen it in the Olympics with Simone Bias as well. You know, I mean... There's there's been a lot of this stuff documented recently of of how um these social media platforms have have, have opened up a gateway to to hate really and um I think you know the social media platforms need to be held accountable but that needs to come from government um it can't be from from them um you know they're they're all there to try to make money um you know and and that's fine but um we need to hold them accountable the people that are sending it accountable um because I know it can be done you know it can be done they can definitely make sure that they some of this stuff doesn't reach the athlete because they you know they're looking for other stuff as well so it's it's not that they can't do it but uh, i probably think the, you know the pressure needs to come from government really and um hopefully this film <laughs> it's not going to change the world i know that but hopefully it might just make somebody think twice about what they're going to say or do or react in some way shape or form yeah and, and i agree I, I think the other commentary that i really liked in the film was that you know, this is obviously about horse racing and jockeys, but you can pull it out to athletes in general. Not all athletes and jockeys are rich, wealthy, super successful. You know, there are a lot of, especially jockeys that are struggling to survive in in the real world with finances, you know, and still having to do this. Whereas I think people see the Detouries and the Ryan Moores and, and all those really super successful jockeys. And, you know, they think, oh, he, he lost this race. It doesn't matter to him. You know, he he screwed me but he's going to be fine whereas there are so many jockeys out there where you know they need wins just as bad as the better you know or the punter needs the win so i it, that that was i i i really like that that you kind of brought that to light that it's you know not every jockey is is bringing home tons of money and and living in these lavish conditions you know they're it's a job it's a it's a job for a lot of them that is is not super successful and it's difficult no, I'm I'm glad that came across actually, Frank. And um, you know, it was um one thing that's been lovely about this 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 journey that I've been on creating this this film is um is the reaction from the from the jockeys themselves. Um, I was worried that it might only talk to you know the UK based jockeys, but you know I've had I've had some great conversations with with jockeys here in the US about it, and um you know they were saying um you know the the same thing you know this could be about any sports person and there's certain levels in every sport, isn't there? The top 10 in every sport are doing quite well. And that doesn't even matter if they're doing well, they still have pressures, but there is a, there is a, you know, a sports person somewhere down the line where they're, they're doing it just to do the sport. You know, it, it, they're, they're on the bread line like everybody else is, you know, and it's, um, and that can be hard. And I wanted to show that side of things. One jockey in particular sent me a, a, a nice message saying that, um, that one thing, one thing that kind of resonated to him was um, the scene where he's having a conversation with his with his wife or girlfriend, however you want to perceive this, um, you know, this scene. But um, Tom, the main character, has uh, has a conversation with his with his partner Emily, and um, she says, "Oh, look, I've you know I've got to go for a scan on Monday," um, and he said, "Oh, do you want me there?" Knowing that he can't be there, he's got to he's got to go and ride on the Monday, the same day that you know his partner's having this scan. 
you know, he's lying to himself and he's also lying to her, like offering up this thing. She knows he can't go. He's got to go and ride, you know, ride in this race. And and it's that thing of sacrifice, really. Sports people sacrifice way more than most people. You know, there is, a, you know, there's a lot of times where they don't get time to spend, you know, you know, their time with family and things like that. So um, I wanted to get that across as well. And that's one thing this, uh, you know, Richard Kingscote from uh, the Jockey in the UK said to me, he said, that was something that really stuck out to me in the times when I weren't, I wasn't able to go and, you know, go for a scan with my wife to, you know, for, for the pregnancy test or whatever it was, because um, I've got to go and ride, you know, because if I don't ride, I don't get paid, but it's not also that ride that day. It's the rides you're going to be getting in the future, because if you don't ride, someone else will take it. And then they might get your ride later on in life. Do you know what I mean? So that's there's this constant battle of not burning any bridges, or or just trying to keep everybody happy. And as we all know on this call, trying to keep everybody happy all the time is a real is a real tough thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, and it's so true. And and you you bring up the the U.S. jockeys, um, and this obviously uh, the the film was portraying uh, U.K. jockeys. But do you feel there's a difference? I, I mean, so. I, I've watched a lot of U.S. horse racing, and then um, I lived in Europe for a while, so I got really accustomed to the to U.K. Uh, horse racing. And I feel like there's more pressure, I think. No, maybe pressure's not the right word, but I feel like U.S. jockeys kind of live a little bit more in the shadows, whereas U.K. jockeys are more front and center. Where in the U.S., if someone loses a race, it's, oh, that horse – is crap or it wasn't good or it was off or something, you know, they'll have their vile reactions, but a lot of times it's more towards the horse. Whereas I feel in the UK, it's, it's always jockey focused and jockey center and everyone knows a lot more about the jockeys and who the jockeys are. Do do you feel that uh, as well now that you've been living in the, in the States a little bit? Yeah. Do you know what, Frank, I hadn't really thought about it till you just mentioned it. And it kind of, it kind of makes sense what you're saying because you know, um, the, the jockeys in the UK are constantly trying to sell the, the sport. But I, I think one thing that we've got to remember is is how vast this country is. You know what I mean? Um, I've been living here a year and, um, you know, you forget. I mean, I'm flying to Kentucky tomorrow. Um, you know, the time difference changes by the time I get there tomorrow. I'm losing hours. You know what I mean? So, like, that just doesn't make sense. You know, when I'm driving from... Uh, London to Edinburgh for you know to ride in a race I'm not going to lose any time you know it's um other than the time I have but you know what I mean it's, it's we forget how vast it is so I think the world of horse racing in the US is so big it's kind of hard to um have the jockeys front and center because they it's only the top guys really that fly in and around you know tomorrow you know when I go to, when I go to Keeneland I'll probably bump into Jose Ortiz, but is normally a New York rider, right? But he's going to be riding in Kentucky for a, a couple of big races. Um, but um, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna see likes of uh, you know the jockeys that I've been working with in Del Mar, you know, because that's th- that's their circuit and that's their tracks to you know to to promote and sell. So I see why it's more horse focused than jockey focused. Whereas in the UK, the jockeys are more in the forefront. They they they're probably more on t- they're on TV more. Um, and and more in the limelight as, as 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 you just said. So I think that's probably one of the things that I've um I've noticed. The other thing is the traveling, the amount of traveling that jockeys uh do in the UK. You know they'll they'll ride be riding at uh, in in London, you know Kempton Park in one one day. Uh, you know in the same day they'd have to drive to um uh, you know Ripon in North Yorkshire or something like that to ride. But um, lucky enough with the ch- with COVID, there's been a, a real positive um, thing that's come through is 
they're going to, the limiting jockeys only to ride at one meeting per day now, which I think is going to make a huge difference to their, you know, the, the, the way of life and, um, and their mental well-being because they're not just going to the racetrack to work. They're getting up every morning to go to a stable to exercise a horse, to hopefully win the ride on that horse, to ride it in the races. And, and the, so there's, there's just all the behind the scenes traveling that they have to do as well to, um, to manage. And I think that's going to help their mental state, you know, a lot more than, uh, than it has done in the past. And just touching on before the, the story itself within the fall, cause I sort of watched this and then was preparing for the interview and thinking about it. And obviously the social media element within it, and I don't want to kind of necessarily spoil anything from before anyone's seen it, but how much the sort of main storyline is obviously a somewhat struggling jockey who has his best ride not go as well as he would have hoped. And with the goal, obviously it was going to go to Cheltenham and that he would obviously have that opportunity. How much was that based on experiences that you had? Was that self-inspired or was it just a sort of amalgam of what you've seen throughout, obviously a story that would be familiar to a ton of jockeys? Yeah, so the top Tom, who plays the main character, who was played by Daniel Thrace, who did an amazing job of um, of becoming Tom, our main our main jockey and our main character. Because, like all sports movies, we've watched sports movies a lot of us, I'm sure that the, the, the three of us on this call now, it's um, in the listeners, I'm sure, you know. And but if you've been in a certain sport and you watch certain sports films. Sometimes that can be cringeworthy, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've I've got rugby friends that have watched, um, you know, rugby movies and like, oh, just that wouldn't happen. And I've done it with horse racing movies. You know, you see the horse finishing second, you know, the guy's hanging out the back teeth of this horse, you know, trying to let the one that's supposed to win win. Do you know what I mean? He's just like, you're just thinking, oh my God, it just feels so unauthentic, you know, and, it, and I get frustrated with that. But I understand how hard it can be to replicate real sport on the screen. So in our ways of doing it in this film was I needed to find somebody with authenticity and um, finding Daniel, I found authenticity in him because he had a real, he felt like he was on the front foot. You know, he had a real sort of, he had a, he had a, an agenda, you know, he had somewhere to be, he was in a, you know, he's doing his um, audition. He, he really grasped what what it would feel like to um you know to be on the front foot you know and um and that's kind of what jockeys are like they've always got somewhere to be they're always for sale they're always trying to win you over in some way shape or form so finding him was great because he, I think we auditioned forty people um to to actually then find you know Tom the, you know the character and Daniel did a great job of doing that but going back to your main question you know like is it taken from personal experience it about ten percent of that you know, character is me. Um, and then, you know, the rest of it really is, a, is, a, is, is a, an accumulation of three or four different jockeys and three or four different car journeys that I've had with people. And I've just remembered, or I remember that happening. And I remember that being a thing that would stick in my head. You know, um, there's a scene where he, um, he gets some, you know, he gets a bad message and he throws the phone across the, you know, the dashboard, you know, like just in temper. And, um, that's not a spoiler, everybody, by the way, it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll get, you'll get the grasp of the movie, but, um, but what that, that was, that happened to a friend of mine. I, I was in the car when it happened, you know, um, him getting this bad news and he just completely lost his mind and just threw the phone across the dashboard. And it was, um, it was just one of those things where I thought, 
oh my, you know, this news was so bad, you know, it just, and he just lost his temper so much through this, this one thing that this bad bit of bad news that he got, because he'd been, you know, what we call jocked off in the, uh, in, in the UK terms where you lose the ride on the horse, you know, the owner or the trainer doesn't want you anymore. And, um, and I think that was, uh, that was one of the key things that kind of started this process. And I would pick up little bits and little bit of articles and, and, and stuff, but most of it was experience of what I'd, of what I'd seen. And, um, you know, that was one of the key things that, that, that helped me create the character, uh, Tom really. And, um, I just wanted to show the human side of him really. And, and that was a key thing really. We spoke about actually in, in, in our arc preview, um, the concept of being jocked off. It happened to Colin Keane for the, for his ride in the arc. Now we were sort of speculating as to whether or not there's any sort of negotiation that might go into it when you're someone as, you know, relatively high profile as he is but still not quite at that level is that simply the regardless of the circumstances the trainer is saying not this time maybe next time there's nothing nothing you can do nothing more to be done sometimes the trainer doesn't even tell you it's your agent you know the agent is the one that delivers the blow you know and um and then you've got to smile through gritted teeth because you're at the racetrack that day um, seeing the trainer and then watching somebody else, you know, get on that horse that you were supposed to be riding. And I think that's what I wanted to do with the film as well. You know, um, the horse that, 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 that our main character rides is called Habitair. And like you say, you know, was running in a, in a, in a big race and would have won if it hadn't, if the horse hadn't fallen. But I, what I was trying to do as well in that short window of 20 minutes of this film, you know, I wanted to make it longer, but budget restrictions wouldn't allow me and COVID and, all that type of stuff. But um, one thing I wanted to show in there was his, his um, you know, him being told he wasn't going to be riding this horse again. Well, that's not just him losing out on the money, you know, you know, or the success of the horse maybe winning, but he's worked, you know, he's worked really hard to get that horse to where he's got to, you know, he'd won on the horse, you know, on three wins before it. And he even says in the, you know, in the film, this is where he says, you know, I brought that horse on. I did that. You you even said yourself. So he's not also just losing that, but he's losing that connection with that animal, you know, that he loves and adores. And, um, you know, I don't think people understand what connections we make with these horses. You know, they're, they're our, you know, our teammates. They understand where we're coming from, you know. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's, them relationships aren't, you know, just throw away. You know, we, we, we love these animals. And um, I think that's one thing I tried to, to to show in 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 that short window that I had but um but I think the key thing is is you know you were saying earlier about the negotiations and sometimes there's no negotiation you're just told and that's and you've just got to smile and go okay you know hopefully I'll get on another one down the road and that's the hardest part I think so so going off that connection with the the man and the horse uh, kind of bring it into a little lighter side uh, your your company equine productions has done a, a an amazing job putting together these these really amazing videos for all different aspects of the horse racing industry and and how how did that come about how did that start you know why did you decide to get involved in 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 making those kind of starting the company and things like that well it was it was through frustration really frank it was um you know um we were we were talking off air earlier weren't we we were saying that about uh, how we get into the sport and um i was not getting into this sport when I was uh, 15, 16 years old, even though my father was a jockey, you know, 
I thought it was for, you know, old rich white people, you know what I mean? It just didn't speak to me in any way, shape or form. I just didn't feel as though it kind of spoke to me, you know, I didn't feel invited. Um, I felt the same about golf. Uh, you know, I remember a friend saying, you want to go and play golf? I'm like, what isn't, that, isn't that what old old men do? You know what I mean? I was into skateboarding and BMXing and, and anything that was kind of counterculture, really, growing up in that little town in, in North Yorkshire. Um, and I think that was probably a part of me just wanting to escape, really. But um, but one thing that, um, that I was keen to do once I'd got into the sport and, and fell in love with the sport was, was show it how I'd seen it. Um, now, I, I'd never been to film school. You know, um, I didn't know how to use a camera. Um, I just had an idea that, you know, how, how can I show this sport in a, in a, in a better way? And, um, you know, in 2000, I think it was 2010, I remember seeing this um, short documentary um, on a guy called Mickey Smith, who was a, a surf photographer, and he made this film called Dark Side of the Lens. If, if you've get chance, please, please, please go and uh, go and watch it. It's a um, it's a love letter to his um, to his uh, passion of surf photography, and um, he's actually the bass player of a, a a very famous artist in the UK called Ben Howard, and um, this little short film just kind of gave me the permission to go and do it myself. We've been you know music. It's happened to me in music over the last you know twenty years. People have been making music in their bedrooms for the last you know twenty years since since we were able to create it and put it on a laptop and distort it or whatever it may be, but we can, it was a self-made thing rather than having to go to a big studio. Well, that's happened with film over the years since the digital camera has come out. Um, so, we, you know, even more so now with the iPhone, you, you put that tool in any kid's hand, they can go and tell a narrative from their, from their perspective. And, and that was the key thing for me, really. I needed to find a way of helping tell my narrative of where I, what I've seen and how I've done it. So, at the time when I'd seen this, there was a lot of extreme sports movies coming out. You know, they're all like these surf movies or or snowboard movies and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, right, if I show my sport in the same way they're showing their, in their sport, surely somebody will connect with it. You know, if I, sh if I remove the snowboarder and put the horse in frame and film it the same way, surely that will resonate with somebody and get them connected in, in in some way shape or form and and that was the key thing for me really and that's when we my business partner Dave James who's a cameraman and and Sam Fleet who was an who was a former journalist when the three of us got together that's when we that's what we wanted to do we just wanted to engage a new audience and um lucky enough um the racing industry whether it be um you know a stud farm in in you know in, in France to um, Channel 10 in Australia to ITV racing in, in the UK, you know, we've been embraced by the whole, um, the whole industry really. And, uh, and they've really wanted to help to help bring a new aesthetic to how the sport is filmed, whether it be tracking vehicles or drones or, you know, slow-mo cameras or, you know, these little POV cameras that we're using now in jockey cam. So we were just wanted to bring technology and ideas and creativity to this world that kind of felt stagnant to me. And that's, that's me answering a very short question in a long way, so I apologise about that. But that's kind of that. That that was my passion that I wanted to do. No, it's a good answer, and I agree with you. You know, it's it is a sport that can feel a bit stale at times, even if you are passionate about it. And also, 
ne not necessarily that approachable for people coming from different backgrounds or who feel like they have no family connection to racing or anything. So I think it's great to try and put a modern twist on things. I'm also, I mean, I love sports documentaries and sports content and watch sports documentaries for sports I have no interest in. And I just think it's part of the beauty of sports is that the sort of storylines that come out of them are relatable, even if you've never done it. You know, I, I can't, I never thought, you know, free solo, which obviously got so much attention. I had no interest in rock climbing, but I was able to sit and watch a documentary about it and enjoy every moment of it in part because it was beautifully shot, but also just because you could kind of relate to it, even if you're never going to go and try and climb a mountain. It's, it's such no, a great and, example. And foot, foot, <laughs> yeah, it is a great example, actually, Ed. I mean, you know, yes, you said to somebody, you know, um, there's a documentary about rock climbing. They're like, oh, my God, it must take ages to climb up a rock, which it does. But how, how do you make that engaging? But it's the human story of, of that of that guy climbing and, and, and how it was shot, the way it was the way it was used. I mean, there was parts of that film that makes I'm not scared of heights, but I know a friend of mine that is, and he couldn't watch it because it gave him nausea watching. And that's, you know, because you are, it made you, 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 he said it made his hands sweat watching it, you know? So there's that fear factor of bringing to, um, you know, documentary, uh, doc, documentary filming. But there's also that, I think what's great about documentaries, sports documentaries in general, is, um, is the human journey. We can all relate to a human journey in some way, shape or form. And I think that's a great way of tapping into somebody's psyche, really. Yeah, I remember a few years ago uh, when my parents came to visit for a holiday and we were watching a movie and I, I told my father, I said, have you ever seen this movie? He goes, wow, rock climbing, I don't want to watch it. And we put it on. And then the next morning I woke up to a text message. He had texted our whole family group saying, everyone needs to watch Free Solo immediately. It's crazy. It's so amazing. You know, so any like if you put together a, a, an enthralling video like that, it doesn't matter what the sport is. You know, people people can always relate to it. And it's great. Um, so I, I guess with that, what are some of the more fun experiences you've had uh, with all the different things you filmed? So, for instance, I saw you did one with um, uh, a few of the jockeys and one of the he uh, heptathlon players. Uh, from the UK or from Great Britain um, in your equine productions and, and things like that. So what are some of the cool videos that you shot over the years that you've enjoyed? Yeah, no, it's, it's been fun trying to mix, mix sports. I mean, what we did one, one that was really, really fun that we, uh, that we did was, um, and this wasn't to do with horse racing. This was to do with the, um, the sport of eventing, which is horses going over these crazy obstacles um, I suppose it's like an assault course, really, but using using a horse um, over around about four miles. And um, we were asked, it, it, there's a famous event in, in the UK called Burley, uh, Burley Horse Trials, and, th and th that's what this sport is, is, is you know, it's three-day eventing, and, um, or cross-country, as, as some people call it in the world. But um, what we wanted to do was, was bring a new, uh, new look to that, and we got some parkour uh, runners to... Um, go over the obstacles and they were like well what do you want me to do and I said well what what feels natural to get over this obstacle and it was so funny watching them be creative with these jumps you know it was such a cool way of doing it and also what was what was great about that was these are these guys were going I can't believe a horse can jump this you know I'm finding it hard I was, oh yeah and I would show them a picture or a slow motion bit of footage of a horse going over an obstacle and they were it just blew their mind so it was trying to bring the 
you know, worlds together. That's which, which, which we're constantly trying to do. We you know we've done some stuff with AP McCoy and um, Ian Wright, uh, who was uh, an Arsenal legend uh, striker from, from the eighties. Um, you know, we've done some stuff with those two guys as well, you know, trying to mix the sports up and um, that, that, that was a fun thing. But I think what, one of the major ones that, um, that we really enjoyed putting together was um, the jockey club approached us to promote the, um, the, the start of the flat season. And, um, there was a, a very famous Audi R8, uh, advert out at the time where the, the where the car is on a treadmill and, uh, the camera starts from the start, from the front of the car and works its way back, uh, to the rear of the car showing the engine and it's the car getting, starting off slow and, and then all of a sudden becomes at full speed, but it's just on this treadmill, you know, like on a, on a rolling road, as you guys call it here in the US. And I remember the jockey club saying to us, how do we make a horse racing version of this? Because it was blowing up everywhere in the UK. Everyone was like, have you seen this advert? You know, and um, Dave James and I went away and we were like, right, well, we can't copy this, but we can come up with our own idea of how we film this. And um, you can find it on YouTube or Vimeo or, or on Facebook. It's it's called The Original Horsepower. And what we did was we, um, we, took, a, we took a horse that was going to be galloping on turf and... Um, we put a what's called a Russian arm next to it, which is a vehicle with this huge camera gimbal on it. And we started off by the side of the horse as it was walking. And at, at, by the end of the film, this horse is going flat to the boards, doing nearly 40 miles an hour. Um, but the cameras stayed with it all the way, just all done in one shot. And it's, um, you know, it, it kind of blew a lot of people away because they were like, how did we get, how did you do that? How did you make that? Because, you know, wasn't the horse scared of the camera? And there was a lot of pre-production that went into that. But that was one thing I wanted to do was I wanted to put somebody right next to the horse and have the feeling of what it would feel like to um, to be next to a horse when it's galloping at full pelt like that. And, uh, you know, we might add a lot of mics on the horse. So, you know, as you were going round the horses, you know, from his from the, from his backside all the way up to where his head, head is, and, you know, where the nostrils are, you know, you could hear the horse breathing heavily and uh, really give you a, an insight to what it must feel like to be next to a horse as it's galloping flat out like that and um, I think that was one of our most exciting pieces to uh, to put together really that's that sounds really neat I'll have to check that out but I, I kind of want to go back to this eventing and parkour mix because for our our, ris our listeners of the podcast know that Eddie um, is very confident person and when we discuss the Grand National Eddie has said that he can complete the Grand National so I think we have a great opportunity for a viral video <laughs> of having Eddie trying to <laughs> jump over the fences in the Grand National and having you guys put a top-notch presentation to it <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, have you ever been to the uh, to the Grand National Ed? So there needs to be some context here. The completion is on foot, not on a horse, and the idea was given unlimited time, and that also it was not going to be particularly <laughs> graceful. So obviously, climbing over you know beachers is not necessarily going to look great, but that I was confident I could get around. Well, I mean, it's um, Nathan, it, you what, know, it is, what do you a, think it is about a true that? test, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, if he had unlimited time, I'm sure he'd be able to do it. I think, but um, <laughs> him getting over an obstacle uh, in a graceful way, I'm, I'm, I'm right in thinking that it's not going to be very graceful at all. It's going to have to be a sort of dive, dive over thing. But um, you know, going back to the Grand National, uh, you know, um, that was that's when we launched Jockey Cam. We were really lucky to. Um, 
you know, when we launched it, that uh, a horse that uh, I was heavily involved with, a horse called Many Clouds, um, who won the 2015 Grand National, I used to ride out every morning and he was part of the jockey cam experience when we um, we were developing the camera. I would be riding out him and wearing the camera and working out where the pitch mark should be, you know, because uh, you know, it's pitched up. So, you know, when the jockey stands up in the irons, that it's just not looking down at the horse's neck. It needs to be sat in the, in the right position. And um, the day before the Grand National, um, it, on the Friday, uh, we we you know we, we launched the camera with Channel Four Racing, and uh, we were lucky enough or unlucky enough, how we want to put it. But Aidan Coleman was riding uh, a horse called Benny's Mist, and uh, unfortunately, Benny and Aidan came uh, came away from each other at one of the fences, and Aidan stuck under the fence as all these horses are flying over him, and he's got the camera on. And it is 10 minutes of the most crazy footage you have ever seen. Um, so if anybody um, wants to, to, to dig it out, it's uh, Aidan Coleman and, and type in jockey cam and it'll pop up because it, uh, it is an experience of a lifetime watching this guy stuck under this fence of all these other horses going over the top of him. It was, it was, it, we were just so lucky to capture that. And what was lovely about the end of that clip, and you'll see this and it won't, it's not a spoiler at all, but um, Aiden goes over to grab a, a loose horse because there was a couple of loose horses in the race, and um, it, one of them is Benny. You know, is Benny's missed his horse, and he's like, "Oh, sorry, Benny," and one of them, "I'm so sorry about that." You know, and patting him on the neck, and you know, because he was just living in the moment. He wasn't, you know, yes, he had, had a camera on, but he's forgotten about all that after being stuck in the fence. But that was just him genuinely just loving on this, on this, uh, on his fellow athlete that they they come apart and not been able to finish the race together. So I think that was kind of like a key point for us, really. Of, of, of all of a sudden now we can really show what goes on in these in these races. So then I guess as we get towards sort of wrapping up, it would be interesting. You've already spoken about one of the challenges in jockey cam is the, is the goal to have every jockey be able to, to have a camera on and to have a live broadcast. What are the other goals in terms of the future of the technology and the ways you think in which it can be used? Um, one I'd like to, um, you know, sooner rather than later start bringing in is, is, is helping the, the sound of the race. Um, you know, we've been... NBC do it every now and again when they when they do the Kentucky Derby. You know, one of the jockeys will wear like a a, a mic so you can actually hear the hooves of of, of the racing and and mainly that's usually usually a bed that they put underneath. You know, what we use a bed of sound of former races that they've captured and just to help give the aesthetic of that. But you know, I'd love to have it where we you know we you know you can actually have mics you know in races and you know what what's to say that we don't take examples from Formula One you know where you know, the team can actually talk to the rider, you know, how, how amazing would that be? You know, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of my jockey uh, friends would be like, what are you talking about? We don't want that happening. But, you know, I'm sure that happened in Formula One where, you know, look, look, what's, look, look what's happened with Drive to Survive, you know, which is a, a, a series on Netflix at the moment. What that's, what's that, that's done for the sport of Formula One? Because you're not only just getting the, um, you know, the, the visual aspects of the film, but you're also getting the, um, you know, the, the whole landscape of sound and relationships that's going on between the team and the driver and the owners and all that type of thing. So if anything, I just want to kind of open the doors more into the sport, really. And, um, um, you know, and technology obviously is a way of doing that, but also storytelling. You know, that's my passion. Um, and, you know, one day we might see a Drive to Survive um, version of uh, horse racing. You never know. I, I, before I'm... 
I think that's a great idea, and I would, I'm sure it's something that you would happily or probably pitching all over the place, I, who knows, but I think, yes, it would be, I think it's a sport that's perfect for it in the sense that I think part of what can make those documentaries compelling, and we've had it, we had um, someone from Netflix's Last Chance You on the podcast, I actually think when you know less about the sport and the people, you know, it's one thing when you watch the Manchester City Amazon series, you already know what happens, or the Spurs version. You know, if you have any familiarity with football, yes, you'll get insights that you didn't see otherwise, but you kind of know what's going to happen. You know if they're going to win the league or not. Whereas I think the nice thing about the horse racing, even if you're following horse racing really closely, they're going to be races you see that you just didn't catch over the course of the season if they're not group ones, if it's a, a random Wednesday and you don't realize the importance of them plays later in the season. So I do think it's a it's a perfect sport for it in some respects. I also think the sound issue you touched on is really interesting because I noticed that when I watch, obviously, a lot of British horse racing and then a lot of French horse racing. I'm assuming France uses that the, the track of the sound on races here because you constantly have the sort of the the hooves hitting the hitting the ground whenever you're watching a French race, which you don't really get in the UK as much. So I guess and it does change the way. So if it changes the feeling you get as you watch the the race itself. No, I mean, um, it, well, two things. There was one thing I want to ask you quickly before I go back onto the the sound thing. Who was the guy you had on from uh, last chance? You was that Greg Whiteley? No, we had the uh, and from the basketball version, we had that one of the assistant coaches on from the the most recent. They're now doing the second season with East LA Community College. So uh, Rob Robinson. That's right. Yeah. No. I well. It's well. Yeah. I was. I was hoping it was actually the uh, the uh, producer and director, which is Greg Whiteley, who I'm a huge fan of because I've loved that whole series from the word go. I thought this has been done so well. These are human stories, um, but using sport as a as a way to tell the narrative, really. And um, I thought that was done really, really well. And and it's great that Netflix are continuing to 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 push that uh, push that series because that's another another one I tell all my all my mates that they've got to watch it because it's just that element of, um, you know, a coach trying to help these young players not only be better players but be better people. Uh, you know, to be a good person in life, you know, you will get on, you know, and, and, and it's just trying to get the best out of them in some way, shape or form. And I, th I, I love that series. Um, but the fact that, um, you know, like you're saying about the sound, one thing I always do when I'm taking a new person horse racing, I either take him down to the last fence... Or, or last hurdle, or the last furlong, down by the rail. They have no idea how loud it, it sounds, of those, you know, half-ton animals, you know, hitting the ground, you know, galloping along, and the, and the, and the sound of the, you know, them breathing and the jockeys pushing and all, that whole chaos that's going on um, is, is mesmerising. And it's funny how they kind of back off when they're, um, when they're stood down by the last fence or the last, or the last furlong because they just didn't realise the atmosphere of what it's like. Because um, they're hugely powerful, these animals, and I think that's something that doesn't really come across that well uh, when we're watching horse racing on, you know, on the simulcast or broadcast uh, TV. Um, and that's one thing we tried to do in that horsepower uh, clip that we that we made for the jockey club to promote the flat racing. So um, I hope that's done the best it can be can do to do that. But I think going forward, um, you know, a series on our sport would be um, would be amazing, and um, you know. Maybe one day we might have one. 
Yeah, and, and you're, you're so right about the sound, too, because we, we attend Royal Ascot every year, so a, a bunch of us all get together and, and we meet and go. And we always, I mean, unfortunately, we can't get the, the last furlong on the rail, but we can get three furlongs down on the rail. Um, and it's, it, you, you can watch as many horse races on television, but once you're on that rail, and you're right, not only can you hear it, you can feel it. I mean, you can literally feel the horses as they're coming down and as they pass you, and you can hear the jockeys start to kind of yell and, and position themselves and, and talk. It's, it's, it adds such another dimension to it. And I think when you can get that dimension and put it onto the, to the actual video, it, it will make such a, a big difference. I, I really believe that because that's one of my favorite parts is going onto the rail and being able to kind of get that extra feeling of being there, you know, with the, with the sound and, and everything. So um, that's, that's awesome. But I yeah well one, one thing on. one thing oh, we've ahead, go sorry go on I was just going to say one thing we've been playing around with as well is uh, is VR uh, we um, we created a race back in the UK in a place called Newb Newbury Racecourse where the Lockinge for you racing fans out there you all know the Lockinge I'm sure the first group one in the UK um, and um, what we did was we recreated a race where it would be um, it was choreographed basically. So rather than it being a real race, and these uh, and the and the jockeys wearing a uh, three, they were wearing these three sixty cameras. Um, so we choreographed a race where we, you know, we knew what the outcome was going to be basically, but without it looking like I spoke about it earlier, where you know the guy in seconds pulling the horse back to let the one other one win. So it was choreographed to make sure that the um the the, the horse starting at the back would win the race. And um, one thing that I wanted to um, wanted to do was was give the experience of what it's like actually to, to, to physically ride a horse, taken away from what I've learned with jockey cam. So um, this VR experience that we created, you know, we put mics on the horses, so you got the sound, you got the sound of the jockeys and the tannoy. So when you put this VR headset on, um, it's absolutely mesmerising, you know, to physically ride in this race and look around and look down at the jockeys next to you and the horse's ears and and being part of this uh, part of this race and. Um, one thing that, that that was keen to, to, to do with that was inspire the next generation. So it's been great showing like kids what it feels like when they put this headset on with the earphones on and riding a real race. And it was um, it blows their minds. You know, it uh, really does uh, um, put them in the rider's seat and, and get them excited about the sport. That's that's so awesome. One of my questions actually I had written down was. Is there any potential, you know, for a, a VR or like a video game or something that you can reach out and, and have this jockey cam footage, you know, like first person jockey, cam, you know, first person jockey horse racing video game or something like that? Oh, that would be, yeah, the, the, well, the VR I, I, sounds I would lo awesome. I would love a video game. <laughs> I, yeah, that would be, it would be amazing to have a video game when it like one, you know, like EA Sports, you know, does just <laughs> does horse racing like they did with uh, Tiger Woods Golf, you know, back in the day. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I'd love that. That would be, that would definitely get me back in gaming. But um, um, <laughs> like I say, it's, you know, we're always trying to bring new technology, you know, maybe we can have, you know, use heart rate monitors and, 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 you know, time, you know, using timing, you know, um, you know, through furlongs and things like that. So, you know, there's lots of, lots of stuff that we use in other sports that can be married up with, with what horse racing is doing. But like you say, it's just so vast at the moment in, uh, in, around the world, you know, it, we need to probably take it to the larger events and, and then it, then it spills out amongst the uh, smaller events, uh, you know, around the world. Yeah. It would be really neat to integrate, your VAR cam with the um, 
like you'll see now a lot of those big races they have where you can actually get on like the mechanical horse and ride the mechanical horse and kind of see how that feels. If you could put the VR and all that together, that would be a really, really neat experience. Yeah, no, that is a fun experience for people to do. But uh, like I say, if you haven't sat on a horse, it can be a, dis a bit disorientating. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I, I know a few people have done the VR thing where they walk the plank or something at, you know, these uh, these VR shows that you can go to. And um, yeah, it can be disorientating. So uh, you do have to be quite careful with how you, um, uh, you know, give this to people. But um, but what, you know, the great thing about it is it's just, if we, you know, we're marrying two things together, you know, the modern day and, and, and this this original extreme sport as i like to call it uh together to uh, engage a new audience and um and yeah i think we're slowly do doing that and it's 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 been a great experience uh you know trying to deliver these ideas yeah and it would definitely give people a greater appreciation we have a, a friend of the podcast a regular listener who told me that last week he took his his young daughter to a merry-go-round and was riding on a horse and said that he came off of it with a greater appreciation for jockeys given the fact that his groin didn't feel quite the same for a couple of days so i think whatever you can do to uh and that was clearly not going 40 miles an hour so whatever you can do to make people have a better understanding i think it's it's always a good thing that would be a fun merry-go-round though if it could do 45 miles an hour yeah yeah, I'm not sure I'd get on it, but it would be it would be interesting. I definitely want to watch. So, so, so I think while we have you here and, and you've you've given us some really nice insight into some sports documentaries and things like that, it'd be great to kind of get your your opinion on some of the things. So, you, one of the ones I want to ask you was, you've talked about how a lot of you know horse racing movies and shows aren't done very well. Um, the one I was just thinking of that comes to mind is the recent one, Dream Horse. Have you seen that movie at all? And, and what did you think of that one? Yeah, I, I unfortunately I've not seen it yet um, because obviously it came out in the UK in in the, in the in some of the theaters and obviously we haven't been able to get to any theaters yet and um, yeah no I've not seen it yet and and you know my criticism isn't of of the filmmaker you know because I know it's hard to make stuff look authentic but I'm just saying it's just that us that are in the sport I'm, I'm sure it's like. Um, you know, a police officer watching, you know, a, a, a police show, you know, that's a dra dramatised, you know, they're just like, well, that would never happen. You know what I mean? Because you've got to tell a narrative some way, shape or form. But what I'm what I'm trying to do is try and be as authentic as I can. So, um, you know, the, the, you know, when they did Seabiscuit, um, I thought that was really, really well done. And in fact, I thought the racing scenes were really cleverly done because there was, you know, if they had the technology, if they were going to do that film again, the technology that's around now will be even even more you know even greater to be used you know I, I know TVG um you know the, the the network here in the US we've been working with those at Delmar and using uh, drone technology you know we've been using it in the UK for a good few years but it's the first time drones were kind of started to be allowed used on on the racetrack brought a brand new perspective to people to see how the race was run from that, that you know from that view above you know watching the the different views of of how a horse horse racing works but um you know and TVG did this great thing where you could go on their app look at the race simulcast not from a normal point of view or you could go from the drone or the jockey cam or look at all three at the same time so i think all of a sudden again it's just that technology work and its way into uh, how to tell a narrative of a of a race whereas you know, telling narratives of a of a story, uh, it, it can certainly help. But um, I've been a I've been a fan of all horse racing movies. You know, going back to Farlap, uh, which is an old older one. You, you you two guys look way too young to be remembering uh, what Farlap was. But um, you know, we remember the horse, but you won't remember the movie. But um, 
like I say, going forward, you know, I'd love to make the next horse racing movie and bring a lot of that technology to, um, you know, to, to the, to, to the sport really. And, uh, and help, you know, like I say earlier, put, putting the audience in with the, um, you know, where the, where the saddle is and, um, you know, give them what it really feels like to, to travel at 45 miles an hour and still on six inches of carbon Kevlar. No, absolutely. And obviously there's the Frankel movie due to come out at some point. I don't, haven't heard any of the, the yeah I mean, unfortunately that, the filming yeah. the filming came to a halt because of covid yeah yeah jeremy irons was going to be playing uh, henry cecil so i was you know i was excited by this yeah i was like oh my god you know it's gonna be that's gonna be epic and um we've been, like i say we've just been involved with the frank editori movie which is going to be coming out in november um we've helped um uh, trombone uh which is the production company that's uh, that's made the movie uh, anthony wonk is the director who um who's, who's who made the AP McCoy documentary as well, um you know I'm really excited about the audiences seeing Frankie's life because uh, it's funny there's 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 some stuff in there that I was unaware of you know uh, and I'd forgotten about you know you forget this guy's been in the sport for you know for over thirty years you know and um you know he's been a he's been a shining star for us in the UK but also you know co- even coming out here and um you know looking at jockeys. Uh, that ride here, you know, a lot of the jockeys look up to Frank Editori as what well, is the best in the world, you know. And um, like I said, you know, he's he's been selling our spot for a long time, and it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how people look look at his story and his life. Well, I guess that's as good of a point to stop as any. You've already been more than generous enough with your time, and it would be great to have you back on because I feel like there's a number of topics we haven't touched on and we could talk for a long time. So hopefully we can have you back on in the future. But Nathan, thank you so much for, for coming on and speaking with us. No, thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. I mean, I can talk about horse racing all day long and then, you know, my second passion, which is film. So, uh, you know, maybe we can do a uh, top five sports documentaries or something like that going forward. Oh, for that, sure. that'd, that'd be fun talking oh. about those. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that'd be Eddie, fun. Yeah, well, let's, let's, Eddie let's... would spend days talking to you about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you combine yeah. them. Oh, that sounds fun, guys. But um, I would love to come on again. And, uh, yeah, please feel free to, uh, you know, to reach out whenever you can. And, um, you know, uh, the fall is available on uh, on Sky On Demand uh, in the UK and you can find it on Twitter and uh, on Facebook and, um, you know, on, 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 our, on our links. So if you just go to Equine Productions on Twitter or Facebook, you can find it on there. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Great. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I'd encourage everyone to watch it. Yeah, I was saying have fun at the Breeders' Cup. I'm sure you're going to be busy. <laughs> Yes, no, looking forward to the Breeders' Cup. You know, it's great that uh, the U.S. is opening up and, um, you know, a lot of European uh, raiders are coming over. A uh, few Japanese raiders as well, which is great. Um, you know, I think that's one thing that Breeders' Cup has now brought to this world of uh, horse racing is uh, is the big international fanfare that it is. And it's 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 definitely the, the world championships of horse racing. And uh, they do such a good job, to the Breeders' Cup, at, uh, you know, getting the right... Uh, you know the right type of competition, and um, I'm really looking forward to it being in, you know, in Delmar. I mean, there's, there's, it's a beautiful place to uh, to visit. You know, where the surf meets the turf. Yeah. All right. Well, well thanks. Thank thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. And have a safe trip thanks, to guys. Kentucky. <laughs> thanks, guys. Okay, bye.